Hey there, Japanese garden enthusiasts, and welcome to the official podcast of the North American Japanese Garden Association. I'm your host, Shana Price. Join me as I have conversations with experts and enthusiasts alike about the art, craft, and heart of Japanese garden design. Najga is the number one resource for all things Japanese garden related in the English language. Our episodes are unscripted and casual, as well as easy to listen to when you're up in a tree pruning pines or even working along a garden path to prepare for a cultural event. So just pop in your headphones and enjoy these conversations with me. Shana here, your host of the Najga official podcast. This month, our theme is tea gardens. I'm going to actually be having a conversation with John Powell today. So happy to have you on the podcast. We're going to start right in with just a little bit about your background. If you could just kind of tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and maybe some of your experience with Japanese gardens here in North America and abroad. Sure. So I have been involved in some aspect of landscape gardening since I was a kid. I really enjoyed both planting and watching plants grow and later on constructing landscapes and did quite a bit of that both in my early years and college years. In college, I actually studied forestry, but in the end, I came back to to back to landscape gardening and garden building. But it wasn't until really the early 90s when my wife Becky and I went to Japan for the first time, and I was just completely blown away by everything. But on the garden end, I was really taken by residential gardens that sort of somehow were making this near miraculous kind of connection of interior and exterior space that I had never really seen before. Most of the things I was familiar with Japanese gardens was bigger public gardens or temple gardens and not these smaller, more intimate spaces. And since that was the work that I was doing, I was really intrigued by that and wanted to learn how to do that. So that led to much more study and some work and training time in Japan for various amounts of time over really about the next 20 years. And actually that training aspect continues. And so while I was still mostly doing Western landscape work here in the States, about by 2010 or so, I had pretty much shifted all of my work to Japanese style gardens in the United States. And again, mostly building or caring for residential gardens. And then about that time, I had been working with one or two public gardens, usually just doing some some sort of specialized pruning work. And then through that process, I connected with Dr. David Slauson and he asked me at one point, he said, hey, I'd like you to look at some of the gardens that I've built over the years. They're, they're out of control. They're losing their, their desired look. And so that, that kind of put me into this, I don't know, this area of working with more public gardens. And so now today I, I still work with a lot of private gardens, but I also work with probably a dozen or so public gardens around the U.S. That's how we met at Rohoen in, in Phoenix. Japanese Friendship Garden in Phoenix. Yeah. So now that's what I, I do a lot and it's great. I help train staff with some of the 
especially care and maintenance techniques, but also some of the more rudimentary construction techniques, fence type building, things that typically aren't part of initial construction work that has to be done from time to rebuild things. So that's that's where I am. Awesome. That that was an amazing summary. It was perfect. <laughs> now I definitely feel like I even have a better idea. <laughs> yeah, right. Um and you know, it's interesting. I do remember having a conversation with you actually in the tea garden at the Japanese Friendship Garden of Phoenix, talking just about exactly how to go about a tea garden tour because we were inviting in all of these mm -hmm. guests and into our public garden and it's not the easiest thing to explain the purpose, all the small intricacies and details and the artistry of a tea garden like that. And I was so impressed. I was following you around the garden with my phone camera, just videoing everything because I just thought that the insight was so great. And so I thought I have to talk to John Powell <laughs> in this podcast, in this episode about tea gardens. So what's your favorite part of the tea garden? The, I guess the artistry there. And then how would we help people in our culture enjoy it? Because I think that it takes a lot for us to come from zero understanding to a point where we can see and understand at a deeper level, but we want people to get there. So anyway, that's kind of what I'm hoping the first thing we could talk about is and get your insight on that. Okay. Yeah. I think they could both be pretty short answers as far as the artistry goes of the tea garden itself. I mean, it for me it's the it's the balance of the form and the function of all of the constructed elements and if we go to look at part of two understanding what those functional elements are is potentially part of the appreciation although there's kind of two levels of appreciation that we can have especially in the public garden setting of a tea garden one that has a little bit more cultural knowledge of what a tea garden's function is, and then one that's just extremely sublime and aesthetically pleasing. And so that form and function balance and the balance of formal and informal and the aesthetics that are wrapped around each, which is, this is centuries of information. And it took me, it's a long time to even figure out what was going on. 10 years probably. And I'm still figuring it out. And it's just a, it's a fantastic environment that I think this is going to help get this, this conversation started about how we can keep it exciting for the next, the next generation of garden users. If that answers it, this idea of form and function have been there since the beginning. Riku, who was the formalizer of one aspect of tea, of a rustic tea or wabicha, he liked in the construction of his gardens to have a high functionality, 60% functionality. and But form was also very important. So in this case, it would have been about 40%. But his aesthetic was very much to reuse things and especially to reuse things from nature, find beauty in nature. But within one generation, one of his students, Oribe, kind of flipped it. And he was very much more about form. It should be 60% aesthetically beautiful and 40% functional. And if you dig deeper into like Oribe and, you know, Oribe Yaki, a type of pottery that's associated with him at the time, parts of it would have been like considered avant-garde and almost, almost unusable, but it is part of 
I guess the the continuing evolution of the aesthetic. I'm always interested in this this the way the garden's constructed, the way the garden's laid out because it is such an integral part of the bowl of tea, the way of tea. And if you're familiar with the way of tea, it's almost it's a it's a compilation of pretty much all the Japanese aesthetic arts. And there's a little bit of everything in there. There's pottery. There's food. There's there's calligraphy, there's flowers, there's architecture, there's garden. And so it's it's a really overwhelming environment to be put into. So <clears throat> for me, the best way to get people to understand this is to give them access to the spaces. They really need the opportunity to, if we're speaking specifically about tea gardens, they need to be able to use that tea garden to fully understand its functionality from the basically the time when you leave the the street on the outside and wait for your host to signal you to move through the garden closer to the tea room the more you know people understand about that sort of progression the easier it will be for them to really begin to enjoy not only the garden but way of tea and all the things it represents both physically and psychologically. But the challenge is, is how do we put people through these spaces that require the guests to have a certain level of garden knowledge or etiquette to really use it properly? Not that these are fragile gardens, but certainly if we put high volumes of people through them in the wrong way, we can, we'll wear them out. That's part of, that's, I think, going to be a challenge going forward. There are opportunities, though, within, within that challenge, I think, to maybe look at some, some, maybe not new ways of designing gardens, but ways within the design that allow for a, a little bit higher volume of people, perhaps. So what would that be like? Because I know it's easy for us to close off the tea gardens and make them more museum-like where you can see into the tea garden, but people can't access it in public gardens a lot. Do you have any certain ideas or thoughts about that as, as far as like what we could do? I do. I, th- I think one thing, certainly we can't leave them unattended. I, we really, at the very least, we need to put some, some sort of attendant or garden sort of ambassador there to help the guests negotiate the space and but we also need to be familiar with the fact that with this increased access we're also going to have to increase the conservation it, from the very beginning we have to consider what what are the impacts of more people being put into my space going to do what do i have to do it may be impractical for some of the existing tea gardens that we have today but it's I think quite possible for tea gardens in the future to look for ways of potentially have, having more people in there by considering ways how it, those additional people could help us give more resources to the space itself. No easy answer. And yeah, it's hard. And there's always it's also complicated because do you feel like they can enjoy a tea garden without really understanding a lot of those other elements? I guess get the right experience if they don't have knowledge of the function of the garden? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think there are two 
it, or at least two levels of appreciation. I think subconsciously we all really enjoy natural spaces. So that that may spark in somebody a, a past memory that is really great. It may think that they're they're entering this sort of slightly more maybe subdued and maybe a little quieter than the rest of, of the garden or the space around the tea garden that would kick in one of those memories. And then I think there's there's also the certainly the potential of, if you're familiar with how the tea garden works, you'd be really, it would be like, it would be like you and me now. We would see these things and be like, oh, wow, isn't that a, isn't that an awesome basin? Or look at the way the waiting bench is constructed and look at the paving and so I think there are both levels, and but in order to get to either level, you have to be able to go in the garden. And I don't think it works very well from looking at the outside. And I think, and as you are probably more aware than me, if you get a, a guest review, usually that's a disappointing factor. They'll have a great time, but if they can't enter some part of it, then they're disappointed. And ultimately, that's the sort of the lasting memory of their, of their experience. Yeah, that's so true. <laughs> that's yeah. so true. And I think too, when they see a tea garden from the outside, it just it begs you to journey through it. And so I think that guests, especially to public gardens, do feel disappointed for sure. Yeah, yeah. If we like look at the historically, the the tea garden predates the stroll garden as a garden style. Not that there weren't gardens that were used for passing through, but you know, in many ways, the tea garden is the quintessential stroll garden. It, it, it is now elements of tea gardens have pervaded all aspects of, of gardens. The use of stepping stones and lanterns and basins and all these things weren't commonplace until this sort of idea of making hot water for tea became a national pastime almost. <laughs> I don't, can't think of a really another word for it, but it certainly the idea of sharing a bowl of tea was something that everybody of any social or economic level could do. And I think it's one of the really fantastic parts about Japanese culture in general is that there was something like that was really at a formative time in their history that really drove a lot of these beautiful things that were are synonymous with Japan that we see today. So mm -hmm. very cool. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Yeah. So I think that's the part that I guess it, I know at least in my position before trying to help people enjoy that it was helpful for them to know some of the heart, I guess, of the sort of purpose and the why behind tea gardens when they would hear about equality or things like that with tea ceremony, they would be touched. I think guests would just feel touched and really like that. But without knowing, they may feel like it was this sort of untouchable world of different hierarchies and stuff. And so I guess, like you said, everyone has to start at different levels. You don't just start with all of this knowledge. What do you think is like the main point that you could say, here's the heart of a tea garden to just help them experience it? I mean, I think if we just look simply again back to form and function, if you look at the way it's constructed with arrangement of the of stepping stones or the paving in general just by their arrangement they require the guests to go slower which really sort of makes them focus on what they're doing when we have a larger path and 
relatively broad and a guest can look forward and see what the paving is and determine what sort of obstacles are around from the beginning. They often walk a little bit faster, lock onto something in the middle or background, and then just blast through something. But here, this is the best opportunity for us to get a guest to engage into all senses because we can, because they are moving slower, they'll be able to focus on their, you know, on their walking, which is going to put a lot of touch in there. And sound certainly will be enhanced because you're not, again, you're moving slower. So you, you may hear the insect, you may hear the water in the basin. So all of those things, I think, having no knowledge of the tea ceremony are things that a guest will have to enjoy because they're forced to do it. I think part of that experience, though, is they really need to be respective of the design and stay essentially on the stepping stones. And and so I think that actually heightens your experience rather than saying, oh, it'd be a lot easier if I just walked on the on the moss next to it. I don't have to negotiate those. And then, but that's a changed experience. And I think the opportunity for public gardens is great because it, it there's so much that we can instill in the guest about our sort of desired behavior within the garden that that comes from comes from the aesthetics of tea but it is difficult without the resources of somebody pretty much being there the entire time that that the public would be going through to monitor the space. It's really not possible to have it unattended. Yeah, yeah. You can get really philosophical about these things, right? But if you just take it down to the five senses, like you're saying, that's a way to experience something actually very philosophical without ever knowing the philosophy. And so I love what you're saying about just letting the garden, like letting their five senses and the way the garden is already designed with the function to lead them through without them having to know all the concepts and the deeper things, they're going to automatically be experiencing what was intended in a lot of ways if they can follow the path. (laughs) And And yeah, it's so true that you need someone to help them do that. Because I know even just from some of my friends who had never had any experience, they sometimes didn't even notice the path. Have you seen that before? Oh, for sure. It wasn't even really intentional, but they stepped off of it, but they just didn't even notice. That's, yeah, for sure. And there's actually a bit of a disconnect often between tea practitioners and the tea garden. They may be practicing, you know, the way of tea in an apartment or in, in a tea room in someone's house where the garden does not really enter into their training. Yet, if we look at the historical model, they were interconnected and you know, we have almost as much information about the garden and the appearance of the garden at the time of the tea. Maybe not quite as much as what the tea room, how the tea room was appointed for a certain tea, but rarely were they separate. So, I mean, that that was equally as important in the sharing of a bowl of tea as the tea itself. Yeah. So actually, so the, another question that I wanted to ask you is about the craft, which I guess this is also interrelated, but the, the challenging part of creating tea gardens in North America versus, you know, maybe Japan. So this is a little more of a technical question. You can get as technical as you want, (laughs) but what do you feel like is really challenging with the tools, the climate, and maybe any workarounds, I guess, or insights that you've found from your hands-on experience? 
it'd be awesome if, if we could talk about that and you could kind of share. Yeah, certainly I think climate and materials are the, are the biggest challenge. I've been really fortunate to have some great teachers and mentors, and especially in this world of tea that have really just opened the whole thing up to me to see that, I mean, the, the garden itself can, can really just have a really huge emotional impact on people when it's put together in combination with the tea experience inside the tea room. There, there's this expression you, you hear often associated with tea, ichigo ichie, and they are these really unique and extremely memorable experiences. But it's a challenge. Tea gardens are very all all over. There's, a, I guess there's a template, but even in Japan, they vary across the country, depending upon the, the climate and the topography and things like that. I think they're well adapted, just as most of all, I, really all of the other Japanese garden styles are very adaptive to numerous environments. And they all, though, respond to the site that they're given. The tricky part, though, is then trying to find the suitable materials to create this space. And, you know, what are those materials? Are we creating a replica of something that's in Japan or basically a copy of what's in Japan with materials that would be used in Japan? Or are we interpreting it a little bit different and trying to use materials that are that are local to us? So you spend all the time in Phoenix, very, very challenging. You know, there's some limits. The desert doesn't really provide a lot of the things that we're used to working with, but that doesn't mean in, in the future that some new things might work in into that aesthetic. I think, again, it was probably Ricky that said, when you build the garden, you should build the garden with the things that are around you. Don't, don't bring stuff from 200 miles away. Um, these spaces really were created from the dust of the city, and it was really about trying to create a nicer environment to go and practice this tea making and drinking. So I really try and do that also. Certainly with plants, we want to use things that are adapted and oftentimes we'll make selections based on Japanese plants, but I'm also a firm believer that you need to be able to manipulate that plant as well if it does not respond to pruning. I don't care if it looks exactly like a Japanese maple. It's not going to be sustainable for a very long time without that characteristic. But that's kind of part of the fun. The climate, though, yeah, the climate, the climate's crazy, though, because right now Phoenix having some record 30 days in a row or something over 110 degrees. And sometimes up north in, in Minnesota, it, it may be the other extreme, 30 below for not 30 days, but maybe 10 days. So that's really stressful on exterior landscapes of any kind, and especially uh, Japanese style gardens. So I think that's our, as garden builders and maintainers, that is the the biggest challenge is sort of finding, again, the, <clears throat> the balance of what materials you might bring in from the outside and what you actually are able to collect locally. And yeah, really, the United States has a, many areas have very similar sort of climate patterns to Japan. It's not not too difficult to actually use similar type materials, but it's some of the 
more extreme areas where we have to have to improvise a little. Yeah. Do you feel like there's any, so I'm thinking about you, you know, like for example, selecting certain materials or plants or things like that. Do you feel like there's anything though that you, you can't compromise on? You think in a tea garden, for example, if you're creating one from scratch in, in North America, do you feel like there's something that there isn't really a substitute or I don't know if substitute seems a little negative, so I wouldn't really want to use that word, but just that there isn't a, an alternative for that that certain element of a tea garden, you feel like you need to really have this either created or made or is, is there anything like that? Or do you feel like it's pretty much all the elements of the tea garden can be sourced locally? Yeah, that's a super question. Cause I, you know, so again, I just kind of look back to the, to the ancient times and this idea of mitate where you're repurposing something from a former use into a new use I mean, that came from the construction of tea gardens. So really the evolution of the basin, the Chozubachi, was was not created just for the tea garden. It was brought from another aspect of Japanese life into the garden. So I think there's an opportunity to do that in many forms. Aesthetically, if we sometimes we want an Oribe lantern, stone lantern, just because their form is really fantastic. Does it mean that we have to have that. I don't, I don't think you, you really do, but at the same time, I'm not really ready to break from that and make some kind of new style of lantern and say, that's the thing to do. That's what I think time needs to do. I mean, I think the important thing that people need to remember is that, you know, the way of tea often looks sort of rigid to people from the outside and and I like, I hate the word ceremony. You know, I'd rather say the way of tea or a tea gathering, something like that. But that's sort of the rigidity of the, of the process of making tea. That's there to ensure that the bowl is prepared essentially the same way every time by no matter whom, wherever in the world, at whatever point in history. And if you look at it like that, then it can become a little less stiff. Really, that those are there to help us, not to make us <laughs> uneasy. And I know probably 99% of people that go to their first tea gathering, they're just kind of stiff. They're nervous. It's totally not relaxing. And so all the more reason for us to have that garden experience beforehand to help prepare us for that. That's that's why the garden was created for us to leave that outside world behind and get ready to just focus on one thing that's where awesome. I think it is. <laughs> yeah, that's so great. And I think I have, I guess I have one more question before we wrap up, but related to that is that, do you feel like all of these kind of what we would say on the outside rigid rules of the way of tea, but they're there to facilitate a certain consistency, I guess, is if I'm getting you right, is what you're mm-hmm. saying, consistency in the tea and, you know, how it's prepared in any time, any place. Do you feel like that exists with a tea garden as well, that there are elements that are essential and I guess things that you do in the tea garden before the tea gathering that feel rigid or feel ceremonial, but are really just trying to create consistency or do you feel like that's more just in the actual tea gathering or the way of tea no i they're in the they're in the garden also and they're 
that's it's all been thought out over over the centuries and so the basic process has not fundamentally changed since then so really the the route through the garden can be changed each garden builder or each tea master may have a, a different idea of how they'd like the guests to move from the waiting bench to the basin to the to whatever part but those are all integral parts and while the idea of going to the basin and using the basin for this ritual sort of purification it it shouldn't be done out of obligation it really is an opportunity for the guests to take an active role in preparing themselves so it's a great way for them to focus on that idea of this this purity concept in both body and and mind and so Depending upon where we are in the history of tea, philosophy was a huge part of it. For Riku, that was equally as important as everything else, was that the people who were participating in tea, that they would gain through the almost spiritual practice, so to speak. So, yeah, I think the gardens are really important elements in the preparation. All of those little things add up to a lot of pieces. And while they may be a little misunderstood sometimes, there there is a reason for them. And I think it's a great opportunity, especially for public gardens as a teaching point, because it really is probably the one that will engage the guests the most to, or most likely to engage the guests to continue some sort of study of the aesthetics, either of some aspect of tea or the garden. Good stuff. Yeah, right? <laughs> Great there's stuff. A lot. Yeah, there's a lot to talk about though, isn't there? Yeah, it's, yeah. So many places have these great, great tea gardens that for various reasons, for all the things we talked about are, it's very difficult to open them up to, to complete access. It's a challenge. I think, you know, some of us will, will get it right. Some will, will not, but you know, it's worth a try. Yeah, it is worth it. And I think for just sharing that experience that, you know, how you were talking about in your kind of your background, it, it starts somewhere for everybody. You never go into a tea garden or into a regular Japanese garden being an expert on it and understanding it fully, but it can move you to want to know more, to want to be there more, to want to experience it deeply. It can hook you, trigger your subconscious still. So it's great to get like to talk about that, you know, how to get people in there, how to give them the opportunity to start using their senses to be someplace that they don't fully understand, but get inspired to understand and have the chance. Yeah, I think it's really the it's the key for the continuation of a lot of aesthetic arts is being able to engage not only the next generation of your own culture, but other cultures and find some common ground within it that keeps these keeps these things alive and not museum pieces yes it can function in a museum form but it also when we make it sacrosanct then it loses its intimacy and really its main object of the whole thing which was to 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 communicate together i hope we all get a chance to continue to enjoy the spaces like this and look for the ways to get other people to check it out also i mean i think the next thing is barrier free access so th there's there's all kinds of opportunities 
Yeah, absolutely. To make it more accessible to more people of every kind, for sure. Okay, awesome. I love just talking about this too. I think it's so useful for gardens who have a tea garden. Just to think about these things and hear from you too with all your experience. So thank you again so much yeah. for making the time. Yep. Yeah, I'm glad you reached out. I really enjoyed talking to you. Yep, great, Shana. To further your journey into the world of Japanese garden design, be sure to visit our website at www.najga.org. That's najga.org. There you'll find an abundance of resources, articles, blogs, information that can quench your curiosity about Japanese garden design. For inspiration and connection with the Japanese garden community online, you can also follow us on social media. We're on Facebook and Instagram, actively posting and sharing content from member gardens. Don't miss out on our email newsletters either. Subscribe to those to stay in the loop and get tons of insights, updates, and exclusive content. Of course, more than anything, it's important to become a member of Najga so you can support the community and also have the community support you. Keep fostering the art, craft, and heart of Japanese garden design in North America with us. And until next time, happy Japanese gardening.